Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. I'm reading today from Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearances, say long prayers. They will, see, they will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people came to put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called the disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of God for the people of God. I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine, this friend who is uh, 93 years old. We were talking about all kinds of things, about life and kids and the challenges that we face as parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. We talked about the state of the world and how concerning things can be. I'm not exactly how we, I'm not exactly sure how we got to this topic, but at one point, my friend began to share memories from their early school days growing up about how different things used to be all the way from the curriculum itself to the social realities facing our children today that just were not a part of the world so long ago. At one point, my friend mentioned that when they were in school, everything was segregated. Two separate school buildings, two separate water fountains, two separate bathrooms, those for white people and those for people of color. Surprised that this topic came up at all, I heard myself wondering and responding out loud as extroverts sometimes do before we think. Wow, I said, I cannot even imagine what that must have been like. What was it like for you? Well, my friend said back, I couldn't imagine anything different at the time. It was all we knew. This is a reality that I have heard expressed many times as I've talked with people who lived through and during segregation. But this time, the words of my friend danced through my mind as if on a reel for the rest of the day and into the rest of the week. I couldn't imagine anything different, they said. I found myself thanking God that though so many people living in the time of segregation couldn't imagine anything different, God did. And God kept on trying. 
And that though God's creativity and love for this world, that once unimaginable new reality filled the imaginations of civil rights leaders and that eventually through hard work and long suffering and a whole lot of disciplined, organized struggle, the segregated world that this 93-year-old friend of mine grew up in became something unimaginably new. Today, we read seven short verses from Mark's gospel. Verses that tell the short but memorable story that we call sometimes the widow's might. Over time, this ancient episode has become a classic example of sacrificial giving as the widow offers her last two coins to the temple treasury, a symbol of her giving her whole life, her whole self, everything that she had. Now that would make for a great stewardship sermon, now wouldn't it? And we are in the middle of a series called Our Money Story, so a wiser preacher might take things in that direction. But we know one another, right? And maybe you know by now that I don't really like predictable sermons, and that piece about imagination just kept nagging at me all week long. And so I wonder if today you might join me in reimagining this well-known story. Long before the widow darkens the door of the temple, Jesus is already there. He has been teaching and talking with the scribes. In fact, many scholars say that this whole section in Mark's gospel is about the interaction between Jesus and the scribes. I mean, think about it. Jesus is in the temple, which is the home base, so to speak, for scribal religion. It is the physical location of the faith and the religious practice of the people. It was supposed to be the very house of God. And therefore, we might expect that when Jesus, who is also called the Son of God, was in the temple, that he would feel comfortable, relaxed, at home, and at ease. But that is not the way we find Jesus in today's text. Jesus doesn't seem comfortable, but rather a bit confrontational as he names the scribes multiple abuses of office, the most egregious of which being their abuse and exploitation of the widows. Jesus offers a fourfold critique of the scribes as he warns those gathered in the temple. He says, beware of those scribes. They like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the public marketplace. They like to sit on the first bench of the synagogues. I'm glad we have no one on the first bench here today. They like to grab the first seat of honor. Oh, sorry. She isn't wearing her robe, though. They like to take that seat of honor at the dinner table. Jesus offers this critique, and each layer of his criticism supports the bigger case that he's making, which is that the scribes at every single stage were more concerned with their elevated social status. 
and the special privileges that their office provided than they were with tending to the people in their care. This, of course, posed a stark contrast to the the gospel that Jesus preached and modeled when he said the last will be first and the first will be last, and that that if one wanted to, to follow him to become a disciple, they had to do what? Become a servant of all. Now, after offering his critique, Jesus could have stopped there, but his harsh rebuke continues as he credits the affluence of the temple itself with the exploitative actions of the scribes. Their public displays of righteousness have in many cases earned them positions of power in the community. You know, it was common for them to be named as trustee over a widow's property as if she couldn't manage her husband's affairs herself. In these situations, the scribes were widely known to take excessive compensation for their adjudication of the assets, leaving the widows powerless and without any provision at all. Shame on you, Jesus says, as he confronts the scribes in their own house, in the temple itself, the crowds gathering and listening intently. And the point might have been made. In Jesus' first critique, but Jesus isn't finished yet. Afterwards, he sits down. He takes a seat across from the treasury. I like to imagine that being somewhere back there by the, the entry doors. Jesus sitting on one side and the scribes with the bucket on the other. Jesus staring them down. He takes a seat across from the treasury, the place where the offerings were made as people came into the temple to worship or pray. Can't you just see it now? Jesus sitting there, looking straight into the eyes of the priest, holding on to the offering plate as the wealthy enter and toss in a portion of their riches. And then before Jesus breaks his stare, the widow walks in and puts her offering in the plate too. Two coins totaling a minor sum, but still being everything that she has. Jesus' gaze doesn't shift from the treasury. Nor does he say another word before he gets up and leaves the temple. In fact, the next words Jesus will offer are words of condemnation for the scribes, the treasury, the temple, the whole religious system itself, because Jesus sees its corruption. This was supposed to be a place of refuge for the widows. The law was clear about that. The law was clear about their protected status, their their privileged place in the community, the religious system, the temple, the community. It was all supposed to be a safety net, a sanctuary. And yet it had become the very place of their exploitation. Shame on you, Jesus implies with his abrupt departure after observing the treasury. It can be pretty tempting to tell this story and to remember the widow's act as a way of her sacrificial giving. It's there. It's in the text. She gives sacrificially. But when we only tell the story that way, we tend to place ourselves in the shoes of the widow and ask ourselves if we give as sacrificially as she does, holding her up as the prime example of goodness and faithfulness. 
But before we carry on down that path, and only that path, we need to wrestle with the fact that after the woman puts her two coins in the treasury, Jesus does not offer her exclusive praise. Jesus does not say, as he does in other circumstances, go and do likewise. Instead, Jesus sees the widow's offering as further evidence of corruption and exploitation. The system that was supposed to hold her up, support her, protect her, provide for her, was there taking her very last coin. And when we allow the widow her place in the larger unfolding narrative, her gift and her story, they begin to work on us in a little bit of a different way. They begin to function in our lives more like a parable than like a stewardship model. Her gift and her story do not offer us a clear and cut example to emulate. Instead, when we look at it in the bigger context, they cause us to wrestle with a series of uncomfortable questions about our own treasuries, our own systems, our own institutions, and yes, even our own churches. Who are they serving we must ask ourselves. For whom are they providing? Is it for the rich and powerful, for those who already have a solid place in society, or are we serving and providing for and caring for those who are the most vulnerable among us? Who are we serving? These are difficult questions. They make us uncomfortable really, because we know that God has commanded us to provide for the poor, to take care of the outcast, the foreigner, the stranger, the orphan, the widow, the lowest of low, the least among us. These are the people named that we are to care for. We know that we are called to live in God's economy, which is an economy of abundance, where there's always enough And yet, as we gaze upon our own wallets and bank accounts and pay stubs, it feels like there is never enough. Never enough to feel secure, much less to give to ensure the security of someone else. Never enough to begin dismantling the broken systems because we recognize that our own resources and therefore our own futures are tied up within them. Never enough to risk a different way of making or saving or spending or investing our money because all we can see is the way things are and the way things seem to have always been. Never enough, we stubbornly say, as the questions posed by this widow's very existence come at us faster than we can handle. But then again... Maybe we are indeed lacking. Maybe we are lacking. We know that in God's economy there is always enough, but maybe we are lacking in the resource department, just not in the ways that we might think. Not lacking in our financial or material resources, but lacking rather in imagination. 
Not lacking in our material resources, but lacking in imagination. Like my 93-year-old friend who confessed that they couldn't imagine any other way beyond segregation, maybe we all suffer from a chronic lack of creativity and imagination. Maybe there is another way to live, to invest, to support one another and our most vulnerable neighbors. Maybe we just can't see it yet because we are stuck in our old patterns, stuck in our old institutions. Maybe we need to reimagine. I can see what you're all thinking, though. That sounds nice, Pastor. (laughs) But how are we going to do it? The truth is, friends, I don't know. I don't know because I suffer from the same human condition and lack of divine imagination that plagues us all. But if we are learning anything during this time of examining our money story and the ways that our finances and our faith really do go hand in hand, it seems that a reimagined life might begin with recognizing that we are called to live in the kingdom of God, which Jesus proclaims is already here and yet to come. And in that kingdom in which we are called to live, we have to remember that God's economy is different. It's different from the economies of this world. In God's economy, there's always enough. We just have to share. Remember that from week one? In God's economy, we do not store and hoard up our resources for ourselves. Rather, we understand that everything we have already belongs to God, and it's our responsibility to become generous and faithful stewards of all the gifts. We also remember that in God's economy, there has to be time for rest. For those with comfortable jobs, with paid time off and two-day weekends, and for those working multiple jobs every day and still struggling to make ends meet. In God's economy, we are all responsible to and for one another. And so it's going to take a lot of holy imagination. It's going to take a lot of holy imagination to help us straighten some things out. As far as we have come in the last 93 years, we still have proverbial widows among us. Those whose labor is exploited and whose lives are taken advantage of. Our systems are still broken. And it is our responsibility not to sensationalize the widow who gave all that she had, but to stay and sit and hear the critique that her life offers. To stay and see the brokenness, to not look away, but to stare it directly in the face and begin to dare to imagine a whole new reality. Can you imagine it? I think I can. But I need your help. Amen.